I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This series examines uh, the healthcare ecosystem and its current uh, challenges and opportunities. Uh, in each episode, we'll be talking to uh, you know, key leaders and, and stakeholders uh, across the industry and, and that ecosystem. And we'll be sort of talking to them about you know, how they're anticipating and navigating the various market dynamics. Currently, our series is, is, is focusing on uh, COVID-19 and uh, the challenges uh, that it is actually unleashed on, on the healthcare industry. Uh, this episode is also uh, one of a number that we are recording alongside on Helix, the digital conference that has been hosted by One Nucleus. Okay, I'm delighted to be joined by Baroness Susan Greenfield, who is able to provide insights from a number of different perspectives. Uh, Susan is the uh, founder and CEO of uh, a startup, uh, an Oxford-based startup called Neurobio, um, where they're, um, it's a company that is sort of exploring novel brain mechanisms uh, that are linked to neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, she's um, also uh, a passionate advocate of the public understanding of science and is a member of the UK's Upper House of Parliament. So, Susan, how is COVID-19 you know, affecting the, the work that uh, you, you're doing at the moment? And what, are you, what have you done to sort of minimise any impact? Well, the impact, uh, Mike, has been huge, as you might imagine, because um, unlike many jobs where people can do things from their desks, of course, if you're running a research lab, um, you can't socially distance automatically that easily. Um, and you have to go into work. You can't work. You can't set up a lab in your own house. So as soon as I heard that fateful announcement by Boris Johnson in March, I felt completely devastated because he says you must stay at home. Um, so within a few days, we have a lab at um, the Cullum Science Centre and uh, we had to put that into hibernation and sort out what we were going to do. Um, the furlough scheme that the government have introduced has been a godsend because we were able to put the staff on furlough and keep a skeleton staff um, working from home in terms of the administration. Uh, but where we were very fortunate is, as often happens in science, and especially in the biotech sector, you don't do everything in-house. And this meant that we already had underway some outsourced projects with so-called CROs, Commission Research Organisations. And as it happened, the three companies we were working with were all outside of the UK. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't a bit of nail-biting, because one of those companies happened to be, in, of all places, northern Italy. But because they were a medical company, we were hugely relieved because they were exempted from closure. So that, that was a bit of a heart stop. Um, the other companies in Portugal, the other ones in Australia, and although they've had variations of lockdown, I think possibly because they're biomedical, they've been able to, um, to keep going. So we've been in a position, which is a little bit strange, of sitting on our own hands with the labs completely closed, but at the same time, waiting and monitoring and discussing results as they're coming in from from other labs so it hasn't short answer it hasn't been too bad it's not what we would have chosen it's not ideal but we, we're going you know we're, we're alive we're still functioning we're a company still and i think if you can say that these days you should be should be very grateful so i mean just sort of give us a sort of an idea of yeah. sort of the, the, sort of the size of the business yeah. um yeah how many people do you actually have at cullum and 
and then sort of you know the mm. fact you have these sort of partners you know sure so in how yeah. is it proportionate so in-house we have about uh it's hard to say because it varies from time to time because we have interns and visitors but typically we'd have between 15 and 20 people at Cullum and that includes the very much valued managerial admin staff and one thing I've learned being in the private sector is that compared to when I was at the university sector um, people put a lot of store investors put a lot of store by having a strong management base so we have some people who don't go into the lab at all and they're about a third perhaps or a quarter of the workforce the rest go into the lab um, so that's what we have at Cullum and then the companies that we're dealing with are usually quite large companies um, because the kinds of work we want them to do require resources and facilities um, that we don't have. So um, at the moment, what we're working on are three separate projects, each of which is covered by a different company. One is to try and develop a blood biomarker for Alzheimer's so that um, even though the degeneration starts in 10 to 20 years, before you see the symptoms, um, even though you haven't got the symptoms, if you had a good blood test, you'd know that the problem was already underway. That's one project. Um, the next is a so-called animal model, because one thing that bedevils Alzheimer's work is there's no authentic animal model that really captures the whole clinical picture. And if that was available, then you could do a lot of testing and experimenting and developing of drugs. And the third is to actually get our own drug, a so-called efficacy study, where we're testing in, again, animal models, whether our patented drug, whether that actually works. So those things which we couldn't do on site um, have been carrying on at full strength. And we'll know probably by about the end of August um, where what's coming in and how they are. So those three programmes, they're all, they're all kind of related because one is associated with, sort of, with sort of, I guess, mm. the, the early diagnosis, et cetera. The approach you're taking to new diseases is slightly different from, from <laughs> others. Could you very different. It's very different from others. Why we're different is that we ask the very basic question, which no one else has, is why is it that only certain brain cells seem vulnerable to neurodegeneration? We know that you can have a stroke, for example, and you don't automatically get Alzheimer's. So we know there's something special about the cells that initiate the neurodegenerative process that makes them different from all other brain cells. It's not a generic feature of brain cells to embark on neurodegeneration. So where we are different from others is we've characterized the features of the cells that set, are set apart, the ones that are particularly vulnerable. And we've come up with the idea that neurodegeneration is an inappropriate form of development. Okay? And what we've done is identified the molecule that drives this developmental process that becomes like Jekyll and Hyde, you know, when it's uh, inappropriately activated, it's evil rather than beneficial. And we've identified the target, the so-called receptor, and we have a drug that intercepts it. So we think we're on our way to a very different approach. And this sounds as if I'm doing some kind of from Dragon's Den pitch, but why, why we're special and different is unlike most approaches, to the best of my knowledge, we actually have a narrative, we actually have a story of why the cells degenerate, because what happens is you'll have some damage doesn't matter what blow to the head or a or a stroke or anything and um, if it's the vulnerable cells they will respond by trying to grow again because they've got this developmental mechanism but in the context of a mature brain mechanisms of development can be lethal so um, more cells will die and so therefore it will retaliate by trying to compensate but more cells will die and so you'll have this snowball effect. And that's what we call neurodegeneration. We actually can actually therefore 
show how that accounts for various clinical facts. And our pride right. is that we can actually be different from others because we have a story as, as to why it happens. And, and, and the sort of status of, of the, 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 the three programmes that sure. you, you mentioned, where, where exactly are we in, in the sort of the timeline? Okay. So in the timeline, um, with the biomarker, which is quite hard, as you might imagine, it sounds, it's easy to conceive, yes, let's measure the evil molecule in the blood. Easy idea, I mean, you know, anyone could do that, but <laughs> not everyone can do it. It's very hard, especially with blood, which is a very tricky so-called matrix to actually be able to single out and detect the molecule of your choice. So we're currently um, still characterizing an assay that we're developing using antibodies, but we're also partnering with a revolutionary approach, which I won't say too much about because it's under wraps and it's not my company, but we're partnering with them. And they have a machine learning approach, a completely different approach uh, that doesn't involve um, antibodies. So that's where we are with the biomarker. And if the latter works, then we could make very fast progress. If not, it will be at the stage that this things normally happen, which will take several months to validate and then to get, as we know from the, the, the COVID antibody tests and so on, you have to have um, a high degree of specificity and, and selectivity and so on. So you, yes, you might be able to detect it, but you have to be sure you are detecting it yeah, and nothing else. Um, in terms of the efficacy study, uh, we now know that our drug is tolerated with intranasal applications. So it would be a nasal spray. And we are waiting again, biting our nails to find out if in one of the conventional animal models it works or not. Um, with all the caveats that conventional animal models are not necessarily ideal and it might be our drugs works, but just not in that model. And then in our own animal model, uh, we know that it does induce behavioral memory impairments, but we've yet to see the histology. So um, it's such an interesting time. And as I've said to potential investors, now is a very exciting time for neurobio because we're really just at the, the uplift, just at the time when, you know, you, you slog on month after month, as you may know in science, and then you get the chance of the breakthrough or the opposite of that. And that's actually actually coincided with COVID. So it's, um, it's quite an interesting time. I mean, firstly, just on the sort of the, the public understanding of science mm. um, sort of issues, so with all the information that we're sort of seeing sort of being communicated about, mm. about the virus, about sort of R, you know, sort of rates of infection, oh. um, uh, statistical models that uh, keep sort of popping up in, on the TVs, etc. Oh. I, I just wondered whether, you know, all this information, that the, there would be, you know, this is actually helping the public understanding of science in, in some sort of way? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, let me turn the question around. What outcome would we like you know if we say we've helped the public understanding of science what difference would we be seeing what would be the desired what would it look like you know and I think perhaps we should step back a little bit and say so what would we like do we want all the public to know all the details and to be querying things or yeah and I think that probably at the moment it's not necessarily helping it because if you asked how do I see the public understanding of science it's not so much that they're specialists but they can understand the basic principles um, and they can understand that not everyone agrees. They can understand that you have to weigh up one argument against another. They have to understand that science is always, always, always provisional, depending on the next thing that comes along. And I'm not necessarily sure that those messages are currently being conveyed. And I think um, people talk about following the science as though it's the Holy Grail and as though it's everyone agrees and that it's a single thing. And I think that probably would confuse people or 
disillusion them when it doesn't deliver, as has been the case. So I think that necessarily the COVID crisis, no one's really um, applying that to help people understand science clearly because there's other things to think about and the scientists have got other things to do at the moment. But um, I think people are, are, are probably quite confused by when scientists disagree. They don't quite understand they say what a virus is, possibly. Um, an R number is just a number. What does that mean to anyone for anything? How do they calculate it? So I don't think necessarily that people are any more enlightened than they may have been um, in March. Right. And, and, and what about the sort of the idea that uh, it might actually inspire children to actually take up science when they kind of realise that, you know, the real superheroes of this this whole mm. um, issue are the people in the healthcare space? Sure. I think um, the question I wonder, I would hope that it might inspire people to take up medicine uh, or nursing and to work in the healthcare sector. Um, and I think that probably when and the real heroes we are laudably, <laughs> sorry, we are quite justifiably um, paying tribute mainly to the people on the front line who are risking their lives. No scientist is risking their life at the moment. So whilst they might be doing great work and especially for the discovery of vaccine, hugely needed work, they're not putting their lives at risk. And I think one has to always pay tribute to that and consider that. And it might be that young people seeing people being that brave and that selfless um, want to have them as role models, but it would be more the characters that they want to be like it would be more uh, the sort of person that they'd want to be rather than the sort of job they'd want to have in terms of the science it might be that they would inspire if they see the excitement um, of the oxford scientists for example as they're developing a vaccine and fingers crossed and hoping that by by september there may be favorable results of the trials it may be that inspires some young people to think god i'd like to get in on that kind of excitement I think, nonetheless, what it does show is how science is central to our lives, which has always been one of the mantras of, um, of the public understanding of science. And I think that can be no, no bad thing. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the other consequences, obviously, of uh, the pandemic has, has been the sort, of the, the sort of the lockdowns and the fact that you know, people are staying at home and are engaging online, whether it's on Zoom meetings or mm. just you know, watching more Netflix or, or probably sure. internet gaming. I know that you, you know, have sort of, you know, studied the sort of the potential mm. impact of that kind of behaviour because obviously there's been a, a massive uptick in, 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 in that, that sort of thing. Are, are, are there things that we, we should be you know, potentially concerned about, you know, particularly in, in a post-pandemic world? I think there's many things, um, and I'm just trying to think of how I can be concise in my summary of some of the, the concerns. Yeah. Um, I think the first is just rehearsing, interacting with other people. Um, obviously, very small children will be with their families, and that's fine, but they won't necessarily be with other kids. And it's vital that you rehearse empathy and interpersonal skills, otherwise you won't be very good at it. So things like eye contact, physical touch, very important, body language voice tone, those things aren't necessarily well rehearsed from a screen. And I think if one has a prolonged period of time with young people not rehearsing communication skills, then they'll have to play a big catch up when they're finally unable to do so. I think one of the hugest problems for all generations is not physically touching. Touch is one of the most basic human needs. It's the most basic form of communication. Um, and once has parallels drawn with the Second World War. Yes, in the Second World War, you could still all go to the pub and hug each other and stay close. And 
I think that this very basic need, the fact that we are getting that prescribed, is going to have quite long-term consequences on it. Um, I'd like to think that perhaps um, a kind of unfettered diet of screens, whether it's video games and social media, might make people appreciate the outdoors and three dimensions more and might, dare I say it, might they get bored with the screens. That would be fantastic if there's suddenly this novel new way of living, you know, where you can actually um, stimulate five senses and, um, and be outside and run in three dimensions. <laughs> that would actually be, um, be a good aspect of it. By the same token, it might be people become almost uh, recluses, a sort of agoraphobic, you know, that you get so used to communicating this way that you lose all confidence in going out and horror of horror, having a real-time conversation with someone face-to-face, -face. you know, heavens, imagine that. Um, so it could go many ways, and I think all those possibilities will vary from individual to individual, but it could be that we are conducting the biggest uncontrolled and unplanned experiment ever in terms of the impact of screen technology on how various generations are thinking and feeling. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, you mentioned it already about the, you know, the fact that you know, politicians are uh, sort of using the mantra of, of following the science, etc. I'm just wondering, you know, you, you're in the upper house. Um, the pandemic, I was just wondering, what, what is the impact you think the pandemic is actually having on politicians' <laughs> attitudes towards science? Uh, politicians' attitudes to science? I think um, they're, they're finding they need it way more than at any other time. Um, but as someone said, what would be better in a way would be not to mix the two, you know, to have meetings and briefings given just by the scientists or given by the politicians and not to muddy it. And I think by politicians inviting scientists in compromises the scientists because inevitably they're going to um, find it hard to be dispassionate and separate from somehow the science policies and the people that they're on committees with. And there's a lot of debate, uh, or there has been a lot of debate um, on this very issue. So I think an interesting question is not just how much are politicians relying on scientists, but how much are scientists are influenced by politicians yeah. and it's this has been a long societal issue of how free can science be and one only has to look at the 20th century see how science was hijacked by various regimes and politics to prove points that they wanted to prove yeah. Um, yeah. and I think there's no easy answer to that but I think politicians perhaps more than more than usual are now realizing that um, they have to give some platform to scientists or they have to entertain the science but i'd say what i think i echo brian cox it's, it's really a mis, misunderstanding to talk about the science as though it's a monolith that everyone buys into that it's a commodity and you follow it and it, it doesn't work like that in any way the, the other thing of course also is that we've seen you know one of the reactions of the politicians or governments is is to actually throw quite a lot of money um at and looking for sort of diagnostics around COVID or looking for treatments or for vaccines. Um, so there's you know, literally billions of dollars are, mm -hmm. are being pushed towards that. Are you concerned that that means that other parts of the, sort of the scientific sure. uh, system are, are going to you know, lose out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It has crossed my mind, given my work on neurodegeneration, which until the COVID crisis, I could say was one of the biggest biomedical crises facing humanity. Now, of course, it's been 
upstaged by the COVID crisis. But what I'm hoping is with COVID, the path ahead is in a sense clearer. Get a vaccine, get um, a good antibody test um, and get a treatment for this virus. Now, those things conceptually are not difficult. Yeah, obviously, technically they are, scientifically they're very challenging. But the path is a very straightforward one as to what's needed and what the result should look like. With neurodegeneration, it's much harder because I have to persuade people as to what the underlying cause is in the first place. Whereas with COVID, you don't, everyone knows what the cause is. It's this virus and they know they need to target it and that's the end of it. So in a sense, I'm hoping um, that they'll get there within the next year or so. Um, and once that is done, then we can turn ourselves again to the longer term the longer term problems such as Alzheimer's um, already is featuring in terms of the uh, the problems with care homes, of course, and, and looking after dementing patients. So I don't think anyone thinks that uh, the issue with Alzheimer's is going away. And none of my investors have said, oh, we were going to invest in you, but we're not now because we're going to invest in COVID. No one has said that. But I think everyone's playing a waiting game, as am I myself. You know, we're on furlough. Uh, we're sitting back. And of course, we need the vaccine. We need a treatment that works. We need the testing to work because only then can I do my job properly. Only when that happens, can I get back to work and only then can I get back to Cullum. So I'm quite comfortable with everyone talking about COVID with masses of money going into that because until that is resolved, the world won't function. And, and so therefore that has to get sorted. So I don't resent a single penny going to the COVID work. Um, and I don't think in any way it would rival work money coming to us. So. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, sort of looking, you know, through the sort of various lenses, I mean, what, what do you think the sort of the, the, the key lesson we've actually, we've learned or we should learn from yeah. this whole sort of, you know, pandemic, pandemic episode? I think really, and it's so easy to be wise in retrospect, yeah. We really should be looking at other countries and see what has worked and what hadn't worked. And I applaud New Zealand, and I know that's a small island, you know, and a small population, but they've had what three deaths or ten deaths or something. Um, similarly, South Korea, which is bigger, and everyone is pointing to. Um, so surely it'd be quite straightforward to really study what has gone before and other countries. And I feel that perhaps we didn't do that sufficiently. So we didn't go in hard and early as those countries did. And the fact that the two things they've got in common is they went in hard and early. And I, I think perhaps had we done that, then things might have been different. But I, I stress, what am I? <laughs> I just say I'm a neuroscientist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an expert in disease control. But it strikes me as an ordinary citizen of the country that a very simple um, strategy would be to see what's working and what is not working um, in other places. Okay, and, and going forward, I mean, in, in that post-pandemic world, mm -hmm. what do you think you will be doing differently or which behaviours have you adopted now do <laughs> yeah. you think that you're likely sure. uh, likely to sustain? Yeah. A very easy one to answer immediately is Zoom meetings because um, even though I do prefer face-to-face -face meetings, obviously, um, in the old days, pre-COVID, I would have teleconferences where you would just be on the phone and you could hear slight tapping in the background. They might be secretly typing. Yeah, or people that weren't actually speaking at the time would be doodling or doing something else. Whereas now with Zoom meetings, it's, you know, it's impossible. You can, you can see them all the time. So, uh, and also the quality of sounds better. So um, whilst I'll never again do Zoom parties, which I think is an invention of hell, um, Zoom meetings and webinars I'm finding as a skill that I've acquired and part of my working practice, something I'll do a lot more. I think also... 
um, people say looking at working from home practices and so on. I still, I think it's made me really appreciate working with other people and working. If you're a scientist, you do want to work as a team and however good the technology, um, to be able to just shout, so, hey, come and have a look at this. Come and see this. Oh, I've just had an idea. Somehow that doesn't work um, in Zoom. Yeah. So I, I will still, I hope, be having as many face-to-face -face meetings as possible once the world is normal again. Yeah, so I guess it's those sort of random uh, interactions sure. that sometimes can generate. A... Exactly, exactly. And it's brainstorming. It's sitting in a group and looking at data together, which I know you can do on Zoom, but somehow it's, it's more stilted as our Zoom parties compared to real parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always much difficult if you if you haven't got an audience. Uh, Indeed, which is, yeah. which is what we're attempting to do here. So, uh, Susan, thanks very much for, pleasure, for, for for taking the time to uh, mm -hmm. talk to us today. Um, this is uh, very interesting, and um, you know, good luck with all the uh, the you. efforts you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I'm sure that the audience was. Um, will be inspired by by you know such, some of your comments mm -hmm. and um and will be interested in also the thoughts around the politicians and that that public understanding of surely. science yeah surely because that's that's important mm -hmm. so if after listening to this broadcast um you've got either questions for me or or, or for susan please uh please click the link that's at the end of the of the video and uh, we'd, we'd love to have your feedback. Uh, it's very, very useful for us because it allows us to, to, to shape these, these broadcasts to, to make them as, as, as useful as possible. Um, and if you'd like to sort of tune into to other episodes, if you follow in uh, our, our LinkedIn page, uh, we'll be posting uh, updates on uh, forthcoming episodes. So uh, in closing, Again, I'd like to, to, to thank Susan uh, for joining us. Uh, I'd thank, like to thank uh, everybody for tuning in. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, we, we, we appreciate it. And uh, I'd also, as we sort of mentioned in, in, in the interview, uh, we'd like to pay tribute to all those uh, people in the healthcare system, uh, the frontline workers um, who are making a big effort to to tackle this this pandemic um, we're all very very grateful for, for for those efforts so on behalf of me drg claravates and uh yeah everybody um thank you very much to uh, to those um until next time um stay safe stay healthy uh, i'm mike ward and i'll see you in the next episode